Hello and welcome. I am Emma Watkins and you are listening to Forgotten Convicts. So this final podcast then will reflect on the ending of the pauper system, or rather question if this was the case. And in doing so, there will be a discussion of the change in perceptions of pauper emancipists, so former convicts who ended up dying within these institutions. We'll also be discussing deinstitutionalization, so the move from indoor to outdoor aid. And lastly, there'll be a consideration of the pension itself and its influence on the charitable system, particularly the institutionalization aspect. And along the way, we'll discuss a case study as well to take some of these ideas out of the abstract. So we'll be discussing that of Elizabeth Jones and how she ended up dying within one of these institutions after the turn of the century. The number of invalid depots then dropped during the 1890s, and this was partly due to changing attitudes surrounding ideas of institutionalization, but also due to emerging alternatives, so other ways of dealing with the population. However, economics did interfere with this move away from institutional management or care, depending on your perspective. And as the numbers within institutions declined, Obviously, beds opened up, but these were beds which had effectively already been paid for. And because of this, even when outdoor relief was cheaper, the money on these indoor spaces had already been spent. And and this ensured a continuation of institutionalization for particular subsections of the population. And this needs to be borne in mind when we consider broad changes and general consensus um, within looking at these um, populations in the charitable system. Indeed, institutional aid continued to apply to those positioned as undeserving, who were largely, as we've said in previous podcasts, they were largely former convicts. Nevertheless, though, by 1901, there were fewer and fewer invalids kept in institutional spaces. Institutionalization was increasingly seen by the wider community as inappropriate for this population. And there was a move to keep the aged poor on outdoor relief schemes. And the Depression had essentially brought many families close to the edge. And this led to a growing awareness of the lack of culpability of the poor. And changing middle class values also benefited the aged poor because the conditions they were kept in were no longer seen as acceptable as they had before. There was a shift from social control to one of health management. A decade earlier, essentially, these men and women were seen as these kind of old lags. But this change, they became seen as aged and infirm instead. And there weren't no issues with this move, of course. The issues came with it, but they were different. However, this shift then towards deinstitutionalization wasn't wholesale and it certainly wasn't immediate and neither did it go unchallenged. Members of benevolent societies, senior government bureaucrats and parliamentarians did push back against the shift towards deinstitutionalization of aged paupers. And this is demonstrated in the opening of Port Arthur, a notorious penal settlement in 1876 for emancipist invalids. And there was also an approval at the same time of harsher regimes to, quote, regulate the bodies of invalids. Still, 
these conservatives in turn were challenged as well. For example, um, the newspaper The Mercury was very critical of this reopening and the Daily Telegraph suggested that the general public would not object to paupers ending their days with better diets. So there's increasing sympathy there. Moreover, long before the general public expressed concerns, pauper emancipists themselves were kind of exerting their own agency to improve their positions, as we have already touched on in, in this blog two posts and the podcast associated with that. Nevertheless, there was a growing recognition that liberalism had failed particular groups, which included the aged poor. And it was this kind of realisation which led to a social climate in which society perceived the aged poor and paupers in a different light. And the belief that middle-class virtue, such as temperance, hard work and thrift, would prevent crime and pauperism was shattered by the depression of the 1890s. And it was acknowledged that old attitudes and responses to the problem of pauperism simply hadn't worked and the government now needed to kind of step in and aid the poor. Essentially, the Great Depression of the 1890s enforced a recognition that individuals were not always at fault. And this helped shift the response to pauperism and invalidism to one of outdoor relief in place of institutionalization, which was seen as being harsher. And the charitable institutions then became the old age homes of the early 20th century due to what Piper has termed a compassionate reform, taking precedence over deterrence and increased outdoor relief came where this was possible to ensure that less people ended up in these institutional spaces. And consequently, despite some disagreement, there was a broad consensus in terms of the attitudes towards the aged poor, which changed. And this did in turn influence practice, albeit slowly and not for everyone. And this, as I said earlier, needs to be borne in mind. So if we take the case study of Elizabeth Robottom, who was formerly Jones and also has an alias of Walford, um, just to confuse matters, we can see how this was borne out in practice. So those such as Elizabeth then, with convict paths and little support networks in the colony, still ended their lives in these establishments after the pensions were brought in, essentially. So Elizabeth was convicted in 1842 for stealing from her master a shawl worth two shillings and two pence, a bonnet worth six pence and three pence in change. And she was tried at the Old Bailey in the Central Criminal Court in London. And she said to her prosecutor during the trial, quote, you gave me the bonnet to wear and lent me the shawl. You took me into your service at one shilling a week and my victuals, you never gave me a farthing of money and scarcely any victuals. So despite this protest, Elizabeth was sentenced to seven years transportation. And there was also another indictment against her at the trial for stealing a gown and other articles to the value of 15 shillings, also from her master, which, which likely contributed to the decision to transport her. The Garland Grove, left in October 1842 and arrived in Tasmania three months later. Elizabeth was from St Pancreas in London and she was just 15 at the time. She was also a member of the Church of England. She had been working as a nurse girl and she was able to read. She was described in her description list as pockpitted 
And in terms of her family circumstances, she left behind her father, John, so she wasn't orphaned, who was living in Edgware Road, and she had two siblings as well. Elizabeth only committed three offences while she was under assignment in the colony. And these were all non-serious, regulatory, or what we term status offences, including being absent without leave, misconduct, and disobeying orders. And her punishments... Uh, were generally solitary confinement. But the last offence resulted in six months' hard labour at the wash tub, which is quite a, um, a harsh punishment. Elizabeth received her ticket of leave, allowing her some greater freedoms while still tying her to the colony at the same time in 1847. And the following year, she received her conditional pardon. And then finally, in May 1849, she was awarded her certificate of freedom. And so it was a free woman. Four years after becoming free, Elizabeth married Henry Rowbottom. And he was also a former convict and had arrived on the Osler and Carter. And Henry was a tradesman who was also transported from London for seven years, um, leaving in 1844. In total, Henry and Elizabeth had four children between 1851 and 58, including three sons and a daughter. The first child was actually born before they were married, but joined the family afterwards. So Elizabeth had died in an invalid depot later in life, in Launceston Invalid Depot to be precise, aged 74. And she was buried in February 1905 in Charles Street General Cemetery. But interestingly, her husband was also um, at the Invalid Depot at the time and he died there aged 77. Elizabeth had her first day at Launceston Invalid Depot in 1898, in fact, and she was in and out of the institution. She had one stay also at another pauper institution, um, the Newtown Pauper Institution, in 1902, before then re-entering the Launceston Invalid Depot in 1903, and she stayed there um, until she died. The 18... 18- 88 Royal Commission on Charitable Institutions, which was a year before Elizabeth entered the Invalid Depot, was prepared to accept that the state would provide for the aged, but it, quote, should not go beyond the minimum in comfort and cost. So it was all about economising and austerity. Nevertheless, as, as already noted, there was an increasing public interest and sympathy towards the aged poor, and outdoor relief was increasingly, if very slowly seen as respectable. Indeed, the establishment of old aid pensions was received with general, though not universal, approval. But still, in practice, government relief in the 1890s, as Elizabeth's case has demonstrated, changed very little, except for a slight increase in the numbers of aged on allowances outdoor then. Even during the difficult period of the 1890s, the Hobart and Launceston Benevolence Societies were still very discriminating and they were concerned continually with malingering. And they struck people off um, for poor conduct as, as they perceived it. However, newer societies were taking a broader view. So for example, the St. Vincent de Paul Society were of the view that, quote, we must not consider ourselves offended if they do not yield implicitly to our advice. We should not attempt to make them receive it as from authority and command. So they were essentially seeking to be less authoritarian. 
And there was certainly then an unsteady move to deinstitutionalization. The old ideas about deserving and undeserving still persisted, but they were being challenged and questioned. And by the 1890s, there was a serious public discussion in Australasia and Europe about old age pensions. Because many of the poor were also aged, these policy debates were linked with those about charity that we've been discussing. Governments began to inquire further about the position of the aged and the feasibility of pensions, so the the practicality of it. And increasingly, pensions began to be seen as a just reward for hard-working citizens. And while pensions were praised as being free from stigma, they still still retained what Garton has termed philanthropic ideals, and many were not eligible under the Commonwealth Old Age Pensions Act of 1908, which was later brought in. And this included Asiatics, some Aborigines, those deserted by their spouse, those not resident in Australia for 25 years, or invalids not resident for five years. So large swathes of subpopulations there not included. On top of this, drunkenness and poor character, as, as was perceived by those in charge, could, be, could lead to exclusion as well. And indeed, O'Brien stated that the radical essence of the old age pension was not as radical as has been presented because there was sufficient wording in the 1901 Act, for instance, to prevent its allocation from what was perceived as abuse. So the pension was still means-tested and it was still limited to the deserving and those of what were positioned as good moral character. It was less a universal right than a reward for hard work done. And 30% of all claimants were refused during the first year of its operation. So it was quite discriminating then. And so pension in practice was not a universal right then, but a form of state charity. Despite pensions arising out of concern for institutional abuses, pauper institutions did not disappear with the introduction of state pensions. And as pointed out by the likes of Hargraves, quote, in 1905, the last year in which returns identified convicts, there were still 186 former convicts in Newtown pauper establishment. And on top of this, the emancipist population didn't die out as assumed by contemporaries would happen and was often repeated by historians such as Bolger. So yes, pensions were important in aiding some, but they were not generous and many of the aged poor continued to need to seek help from charities despite such welfare benefits. The old age pension didn't empty these institutions then, I guess is the point here. And O'Brien argues that this was the initial intention though. Nonetheless, it's certainly true that of course the move towards pensions was still a very important one. It just wasn't a shift that happened overnight and it didn't help everyone. Thank you very much for listening.